Instead of a main idea today, since the main idea is communion, I want to read you just a quote from the Calvin Institute on Worship. We have that? It says, The Lord's Supper is a, rich, a physical ritual action mandated by Jesus through which God acts to nourish, sustain, comfort, challenge, teach, and assure us. A richly symbolic act, the celebration of the Lord's Supper, nourishes our faith and stirs our imaginations to perceive the work of God and the contours of the gospel more clearly. The contours of the gospel more clearly. Obviously, there we go. But the Lord's Supper nourishes our faith, stirs our imaginations to perceive the work of God and the contours of the gospel more clearly. That's a pretty rich statement right there. That not only do we do something that nurses us and, and stirs us to learn more about the gospel, but it, it teaches us and it shapes us and it molds us. And so that's, that's our desire for communion today, that, it would, that we would be drawn nearer to Jesus because of this. And so if you come from a different tradition, you come from a Catholic tradition or an Orthodox tradition or a non-denominational church that didn't do communion very much or whatever, this is really at the roots of what anyone believes. And then they have lived that out differently over time and over history of theology. Uh, but we, we take it weekly, believing it to be a means of grace to us, a way that God continues to ongoing, ongoingly strengthen us, to build us up. If you're joining us, and we've got a, a great live stream audience, we've been having a lot of folks join us all over the country, all over the state, all over the place. Uh, and, and if you're local, I would say this, if you're here, if you're local and you can be here, this is a piece that you miss, right? That you don't get to join in and be a part of the body. Now, we're glad if this is serving you and you're not near her, we're grateful either way. But communion is a thing that God uses to strengthen us. It, it is not just a practice or a ritual. It is a, it is a means of grace to strengthen us. And so we're going to look at Matthew 26 today, start back in verse 1, it says this, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover coming is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So Jesus celebrated many Passovers in his life. There are several that we see where even we see one when he is young, uh, we see some during his ministry, we see these different moments, that this one is unique. This Passover, as he gets ready to celebrate with the disciples, is a different kind of Passover. And I don't mean that anything has changed other than what Jesus is doing. But he has celebrated a traditional Jewish feast with his disciples and with his family growing up all of his life. He is roughly 33, 34 years old, is everybody's best guess, right? At the time of his death and resurrection. We're looking at this around AD 30, and the Jews are, and, and in Jerusalem are still practicing Passover, which is the context for this passage, regularly practicing Jews would do this every year. So this will be the final Passover that Jesus celebrates with his disciples. And so just kind of as, a, as another starting point, Passover is coming and Jesus is nearing his crucifixion. He has outright said this. His focus is on himself preparing his disciples for his death. In fact, I would even say this, I think I was editing there, his focus is on preparing his disciples for his death, rather than himself, and conveying the importance of what is to come. So it's this, it's this time, his disciples, and he have, they, they've, they've already celebrated Passover in the past. 
In fact, it is at Passover where Jesus goes on to feed the 5,000 that we see, uh, John, I think chapter 6-ish will tell you that. So they've had Passover with him before. And as this one comes upon him, they ask him, Jesus, where are we going to celebrate Passover together? We'll see that in a minute. And he's going to sit down. It's in this context where he's going to meet with him, but he's going to make this one significantly different. He's going to take a traditional Jewish Passover, and he is going to fulfill meaning in it and show them how scriptures have been pointing to him and how he fulfills the Passover. And we'll get there. Verse 3 says this, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people, they gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So it's Passover time for all Jews. And so the chief priests and, and the scribes and the elders of Judaism, they're all getting ready for Passover. But there's been this upstart rabbi teacher named Jesus who has been really a bother to them for the last three years. And they've tried at different times to capture, arrest, kill Jesus, but have not been able to. And now they believe they have their moment. They believe that they can get together and that they can grab Jesus, arrest him, persecute him, and, and then ultimately kill him. So as they plan this out, here's what they say, but not at Passover, because the people will have an uproar. Like this is such an amazing season, such an important time that we don't want to do it during this because the people will revolt when we do this. So Passover, I want to back up. And so all this stuff, everything I put on the screen, if you, have an, if you have our app, it's all in the app. It's under the thing, just under the button that says notes. But I want to move really quick for this because maybe you're not familiar with Passover. Maybe this is unfamiliar territory to you. Maybe you're new to Christianity, new to the church, unfamiliar with this. And so I just want to walk through it. And so Exodus 12 is, says this, and this is God speaking through Moses to the people of Israel. He says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. You shall not keep it, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the tube doorpost of the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So here's, here's the opening of Passover. The context is this. The, the Israel, Israel is enslaved to Egypt. And Egypt has had them for hundreds of years. And now Israel has been crying out to God, God, will you deliver us? God, will you release us from slavery? God, will you release us from the burden that we're under? And, and as they repent and as they return, as they pray, God hears them. And God sends Moses in to liberate them. And you know the story, I'm sure most of you probably know the story, that Moses goes in and he tells Pharaoh to let the people go to release the, the Israel, uh, the folks from Israel, release those slaves, let them go out into their own land, Pharaoh at times says yes, and then he kind of doubles back and says no, and he continues to persecute them and make life harder on the Hebrew slaves. Ultimately, God says this, I'm going to now deliver them from Egypt, and I'm going to do that by striking down the firstborn across the entire land of Egypt. But you, you my servants, here's what you will do. You will take a lamb According to your household, it's like if you have a big house, you have, to get a, uh, you have to do that. If you have a smaller house or a poor household, you can share with a neighbor. They just kind of talk about how to do this. But you're going to take a lamb in. You're going to bring it in. You're going to keep this lamb. It's going to live among you. In other places, it talks about a pure, spotless, one-year-old lamb, like the best of your crop. And you're going to bring it in. And on twilight of the, the appropriate day, you're going to slaughter the lamb. And what they would do is there was this 
in their doorway, the header and the sides of the door, they would have like kind of this gutter that remained in between outside and inside. And you just got to imagine it was long before kind of some of the advancements we have in, in residential housing. And there was just this thing that would kind of collect and they would do that. And so they would slaughter the lamb right there and bleed it into the, into the, to the walkway of the door. And then by God's command, they were to paint the sides of the doorway and the top of the header that they were to do this, and this was going to be the symbol that they are God's people and that they have been obedient to God. And that would mark their homes so that when death sweeps through Egypt, death will pass over them. Hence the name Passover, right? So Exodus 12, says, uh, verse 6 says this, They shall eat of the flesh that night, roasted on fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. There's a feast that goes with this. So there's a bit of a duality, Right? There is death that's going to sweep over the land, but there's a feast and a celebration that God is rescuing them. There's a symbol. There's blood that's been shed. These homes, these people are marked as gods, and they are to slaughter this lamb, paint the doorpost, paint the header, do this, and then, and then eat that lamb, roast that lamb, eat that lamb as a feast. It goes on, verse 12 and 13, it says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. On all the gods or idols of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And I, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Here's God's promise. In Egypt, where they've been persecuting, I'm going to strike the firstborn of every human, the firstborn of every goat, the firstborn of every cow, every living thing, the firstborn will die tonight. Here's how you stay out of it. Here's how you're delivered from this. You, you do what I said. You slaughter the lamb. You paint the post. You paint the header. You do this, and death will pass over you. You celebrate the meal knowing. There's other passages that says, you eat this meal with your shoes on, and you're ready to dress, be out to go. Like you, you eat this, and you fall asleep that night, like ready to go, because as soon as this is done, Egypt will release you. In the verse, and to Exodus 13, verse 6, it says this, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you on all your territory. So this is very cultural. And so what you have to understand, leaven is symbolic of sin. And so that's the, that's the simple idea. So they are to go without leaven. So they are to eat flatbreads, not breads that rise. They are to remove all the leaven of their house. And they're to remove this, and it's a reminder that they need to remove sin, that the thing that got them enslaved to God was their disobedience to God. Just like when we're in Isaiah, and God is calling his people to return to him and be faithful to him, it's our sin and disobedience that drives us away from God, and then we find ourselves enslaved to whatever, right, be it our lifestyles or the, whatever it might be, in this case, literally enslaved to Egypt. This is a reminder that God must remove what's broken, God must remove the sin from us, and so they use leaven as that symbol. Exodus 13, last couple of verses, says this in 9 and 10. It shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. So really he's saying, listen, this will be a reminder of what God does. This will be a memorial, like a sign on your hand or a memorial, like something that you will use to remember. And every year, you will celebrate this. Every year, you will keep Passover, even though God has set you free from Egypt. You'll do this as a reminder, a lot like we do 
Easter, Christmas, it'll be a reminder of that God delivered you from slavery by a powerful hand that God delivered you. So back in Matthew 26, the, the context now is them gathering around the Passover meal. Matthew 26, verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at a table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. So remember, Jesus is focused on equipping the disciples for what lie ahead of them when he dies. Right? He, is, he is changing things and he is adding things to them so that they will understand what to do in response to his death. And here comes this woman who is a part of this conversation in this home. And, and we often kind of miss some of the context and think, well, Jesus is just in a room with 12 disciples. But he's not. He's there. He's got a crowd. He's got others uh, that were around him. We know those 12 disciples that were sent as apostles later. We know the significance of them. But there are friends and family and, and a group of people that are around Jesus. And at this point, there's a woman who in hearing Jesus say, listen, we're going to celebrate the Passover and then I'm going to be betrayed and crucified and die. She hears him and believes him. Well, the disciples are somewhere else thinking about something else, wondering why this waste, wondering why they couldn't have just, even if, even if their hearts are in the right place, they're thinking about things of earth for sure. Well, we could have sold this and, and given it to the poor. And that's not to say that all of them in this context, their hearts are right, as we'll see in a minute. But their head is in the, the, the world, if you will. They're, they're buried in this human story, and they can't get outside of it. But this woman uniquely sees outside of it, and she begins to anoint Jesus, preparing him for his death. It's a beautiful picture of, it, of just people kind of understanding what Jesus is saying as he's unpacking this. And getting on board with what he's doing. Verse 11 says, For you always have the poor with you, Jesus speaking, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Like she got what I'm saying. You're not hearing me. I know you're my disciples and I've spent a lot of time with you and I love you deeply and you have done amazing things and you've seen me do amazing things, but you're too locked in on what we're talking about right here and you're missing what I'm saying. And this woman has done something amazing. She heard what I'm saying, and she is, she is preparing, me, preparing me for what lay ahead of me. Verse 13, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. How do we know that's true? Pretty easy, right? This woman's faithfulness, this woman's obedience... This woman's intention and listening to Jesus causes her to do something seemingly small and insignificant. Yes, there was a cost to it, but really causes her to be obedient in a moment when others aren't getting it. And we don't have her name, but we have her story. And throughout history, so 2,000 years later, here we are, and we're reading about a woman whose little obedience just made her stand out in that moment. Simple obedience. Sometimes I think we, we look at the big things, but it's not the huge and magnificent works accomplished in life that make for faithful Christians. It's being obedient in the little things that add up to a life well lived for Christ. 
It's being obedient in the little steps each day. It's not the huge, magnificent gifts or works or gestures that we do. It's being obedient in the little moments. It's that faithful churchgoer who gives and serves and, and, and is, is a part of the body that just stacks up a life of amazing service to their faith. It's not the big dollar givers or the person who does. It's, it's not the things that are just we try and or we think maybe it's about. It's, it's about all the, the, the faithful people who just do the next thing that Jesus has called them to do, and then the next thing, and the next thing, and it just stacks up for a faithful life. And that's this woman. In this moment, this woman saw what she had, heard what she heard, and said, you know, I just want to be a, a, a part of this. At this time, I just want to be here and serve Jesus in this way. Verse 14, it says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So the setting changes, and one of the disciples goes out to see the chief priests, who are very clear on their intention of arresting and killing Jesus. And he decides, you know, here in this moment, I don't know what Jesus is thinking, or what he's saying, or he's saying he's going to die, and I don't know what that means, and, and this, isn't, this is not what I signed up for. And so I'm going to see if I can profit from this. I'm going to see if I can benefit from this. And so he leaves that setting and he goes, he speaks to the chief priests, and they buy him for 30 pieces of silver. So Jesus will betray Jesus, Judas will betray Jesus, and have him handed over for crucifixion. Verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread. So there's a, there's a time lapse between verse 16 and 17. So now we fast forward to the first day of, the, of, the, of Passover. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So on the entrance of this, when families are gathering up that lamb and bringing them in and removing the leaven from their house and they're going without leavened bread, they're eating flat bread instead of bread that rises and they've, they've gone through this. In fact, Jewish families, even to this day, will hide a little bit of leaven in their house and have their little kids go around and look for the leaven and, it's, and as they find that, they bring that back and they get rid of it and it's a, it's a reminder that there is a need for God to remove what's broken, that there's a need for God to cover over our sin. And so it's at the front end of this, this process that goes on for many days, that they're starting to enter, to enter into that season, and they ask Jesus, where is it, when all of this culminates on Passover night, on the big Passover feast, where would you have us celebrate that together? So what I want you to hear is the setting for communion for you and I is this Passover meal, where Jesus sits with his disciples and takes on a traditional Jewish feast but then in a new way begins to unpack the meaning that's always been there. The meaning that has always been there. He begins to share that with them. Verse 18, he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus directed them and they prepared for the Passover. So they find this home, the disciples go out, they speak to this man who lets them use the home and they're going there to sit down and have that Passover meal that night. Verse 20, and when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. So fast forward now. Now we're at Passover night. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So imagine this festive meal. Imagine this time together. Jesus has been telling them for, for a while now, as he has fixed his eyes back on Jerusalem and pivoted and started heading back to Jerusalem from farther places, Samaria and, and, and all over the area. 
as he's been working his way methodically back to Jerusalem, he has been sharing with them, listen, I'm going back because I'm going to die. And these are the people that thought, this is, this is the one, this is the one that God gave us, this is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises, and, and, and some of those promises just don't make sense, they don't end in death. How do we do this? But they really truly believe that he is the one, that, that he is their savior, he is their Messiah or Christ. And so they can't reconcile all the answers, and you got to put yourself in their place. If I was to sit here and tell you, listen, in just a few days, I'm going to die, but it's cool, I'm coming back. Right? Like, probably looking for a new church next week, right? <laughs> Lots more seats. This is the first time. This has never happened. The disciples don't understand. And so they're trying to reconcile all these teachings and all the miracles Jesus has done and all the claiming to be God that he has done publicly, which is why the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests, why they want to kill him, is because he has outright claimed to be God. I don't get it. But we got to give them a break because what Jesus is saying, if you're them, makes no sense. So they're hearing this and they're sitting around this table, and now, at this big festive meal, they've kind of put this whole I'm going to die thing on the back burner, and they're having this great meal, and Jesus says, so, one of you guys is going to betray me. Imagine the tone change at Passover dinner, right? As they're like, wait a minute, like, what's going on here? Verse 22, and they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? you got to imagine this. So Judas knows this. Judas has betrayed him. Judas has been paid to betray Jesus. But the other disciples know their flaws, right? And they're in the context of Passover where they've been working through this whole idea of ridding themselves of the leaven. They know their flaws and vulnerability. They know, they're like, okay, well, maybe it's me. Like, am I going to do something bad? Like, am I going to do something wrong? Like, Jesus, tell me, is it me? I love, actually, that they're introspective. Not going, oh, is it you? Is it you? Like, is it Jesus? Is it this guy? I've always had my suspicions about John over here, you know? Right? I mean, like, it could have been like that. But they have a good response. They're like, okay, is it me? Like, am I going to do something? I don't want to do that. But is it, am I the one? And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Verse 23, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him, for that man, if he had not been born. And Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. So the setting goes, he says this, he drops this bomb that one of the close friends, one of the people that Jesus has given the last three years of his life to, who has unfolded the plan of the kingdom of heaven, which is at hand, he keeps telling them, I am the kingdom of heaven. I am the, the miracles they've seen and the teaching they've heard. They've watched this as some of the brightest minds in Judaism have confronted him and tried to trip him up with false teaching or uh, struggling questions. They've tried to trip him up culturally. They've tried to try, uh, trip him up biblically. The two different sides, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who disagree about resurrection, try and come get him to solve stuff and get him in trouble with the other ones. And Jesus has masterfully walk through all these conversations. They bring a woman caught in adultery, and they bring her to him and say, listen, Moses' law says we should stone her. What do you say? Like, if he says we shouldn't stone her, then he's against Moses. 
And if he says stone her, then it'll make him look bad in front of his people. And he just masterfully says, you know what, you're right, you're right. So the first, so the one of you that has no sin, you go first. He says they all walk away. Oldest to youngest. The ones who know better go first. But there remains one by the woman who is sinless, who could throw the first stone, but he doesn't. See, Jesus has been unpacking these things as the sinless savior of humanity, telling that woman, go and sin no more. He's come for forgiveness. He's come to cover sin. And so he's been this person, and you've got to imagine if you're the 12 disciples, and you're saying, okay, one's going to betray him, and they don't necessarily know how big or how great maybe. But they're wondering, okay, is it me? Like, am I going to do something wrong? And then Judas gets up, it's him, and he leaves to go betray Jesus. Everyone else is just like, he saw the same things we saw. What happened? Why would he, why would he do this? What's going to happen? And it shakes them. Now it says this, verse 26. Now as they were eating, so they're back to the Passover meal. The betrayer has gone. Judas is going to deliver him to tell the chief priest where he's going to be. The other 11, whoever else, seated around a table with Jesus. They're having this Passover meal, which has several like, segments to it. And in the midst of this, it says this. Now as they were eating, verse 26, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. The context around Passover, this celebrated meal, year after year after year, where they would slaughter a lamb, bleed it out, cover the doorway in the blood. They do this, and then they would roast this lamb, they would eat this lamb, and as they're having this, they've got this, this unleavened bread, and he takes this bread, and he breaks it, and he hands it. And he says, take and eat, this is my body. And the first thing, really, he's doing that is different is he stopped using so many word pictures or, or teaching them uh, by story or by word or by analogy of history or whatever else, tying himself to Scripture, doing this, and he begins to give them a drama that's going to unfold in front of them. Up until this point, he's done things like this in Matthew, earlier in Matthew. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So listen, you know the story of Jonah. In fact, in August, Pastor Vinny taught through it and, and a couple others. And we went through the book of Jonah. And we know that Jonah was in the, in the belly of the great fish for three days. And we know that what God was doing there and how God delivered him up. And so Jesus saying, just like that, I'll be buried in the earth. So he's been using these, these images from Scripture. He's been using these teachings to try and convey to them, listen, I'm going to die, but I'll be back. And again, you have to give the disciples a break. Imagine he was telling us that, and it had never happened. Imagine the confusion. And so he's been trying to show them, and then now he turns, he pivots, and he starts to give them a visual. Like, let me show you now. And he breaks the bread, and he says, this is my body. My body will be broken for you. Right? I'm going to be broken so that you can be made whole. Here's what I will endure on your behalf, because this is what it takes for you to be rescued from your sin. This is my body, broken for you, take and eat. Verse 26, he goes on to say this, I'm sorry, 27. 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood of the covenant. So Passover was a covenant with the people made in blood, right? You can see that. The lamb is slaughtered. They paint the doorpost and the top. They have this this image of blood, this need for removal of sin, this death that must take place in their place so that death will pass over them. So while death is striking, the rest of Egypt, of animal and man and whatever, as death is going by, it's passing over them because of a sacrifice, something they made, a lamb who died as a covenant symbol in blood over them. They get all this. They understand the symbolism. They've grown up with it, reciting this back and forth, knowing this. But Jesus says, now let me, let me tell you some more. That lamb is just a foreshadowing. It is just the first part of this. I am actually the fulfillment of it. I'm going to be broken. This will be my blood. My blood will be the covenant. And it will forgive your sins. I need you to have that image of that doorway and just understand as you paint the top from the slaughtered bottom and you paint the sides, what you have is a cross. What you have is an image of blood in four spots. In a place where you could say where the crown of thorns fits and the arms are pierced and the legs are pierced, you have this image in a doorway. But then the prophets throughout history have also pointed to that and and pointed it to Jesus. John says this in John 1, 29. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, the Lamb of God meant the same thing to everybody. When you were Jewish and you heard the Lamb of God, you knew we were talking about Passover. Today in our Christian context, we hear the Lamb of God and we think like what John says here, what John says in Revelation, we we get those images of him being the Lamb of God, but we have no context for it. It's because he is replacing this lamb so death will pass over them. So eternal death will pass over us. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed. You see, that's in its essence, that is the foundation of the gospel. That there's a God who created us and designed us and knows how we are best. Who loves us deeply and called us to be the way we were designed. And just a simple design that we are designed to worship God. I don't mean like standing and singing songs. I mean that all our lives would glorify God. That's our design. That's how you and I are made to be. That we best function when our life glorifies God and not ourselves. When we worship him and not anything else. When we worship the creator and nothing created. That's how we're designed. But you and I know not only historically, but in our own lives, we've all chosen to go our own way. Chosen to go our own way. Adam did it, Eve did it, our first parents did it, everybody since them has done it, and then we got on this life cycle of life and just added sin after sin after sin after sin. And then we look around the world and we wonder why it's so broken, and we go, it's because we're so broken. Because we've piled sin on sin on sin. And our best efforts to rescue ourselves just pile sin on top of sin on top of sin. Isaiah just said that just probably six weeks ago. Our best efforts only add to the problem. But Jesus says, listen, I'm actually the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. the world. I'm the one that when my blood is poured out, death eternally passes over you. When my blood is shed, the covenant is complete and your sins are forgiven. See, the gospel is that, that God loved us. And even in our sinfulness, in our separation from God, 
Because that sin did just that. It separated us from God. As Romans says, the wages of sin is death. Right? Our sin means we will not only die physically, but eternally. We can be separated from God. But God in his love and his grace and his benevolence and his mercy says, I don't want it to be that way. And though you deserve death, you deserve hell, I still love you. And so God, the Son of God, the Word of God, stood up off the throne in heaven and put on flesh and was born of a virgin, entered this world in a poverty-stricken family as a baby, not as a king, as a poor baby, and then grew up without sin, lived the life that you and I are called to live, lived what we were intended and designed to be, and then traded his life for ours, not just a perfect man, but a perfect God dying on a cross. That he would take our sin, the great exchange, that, that we would bring our filth and our sin, and he would nail it to the cross and exchange it for his purity and his righteousness, for his holiness and his healing and his redemption. That he would be nailed there for us, and that he would go die and be in a grave. That like Jonah, three days he would be found to be dead. But if the story ended there, we could celebrate and be forgiven of sin, but we would be a lot of forgiven people still trapped in our brokenness. The story continues that three days later, Jesus raises from the dead. And in that, having victory over Satan's sin and death, having victory over everything in this life, Jesus calls us to be found in him. That in that, we can have new life. In that, we can have victory. In that, we can overcome our addictions or our problems. That, not, that we will never be perfect as long as we're still here, but we can begin that life of redemption and restoration. And so when Jesus had completed everything needed to be done, he ascended back to heaven, his rightful place, where he was before. And he pours out his spirit on us to empower us to live the life he's called us to live. As he gets ready to go to the cross, he looks at his disciples and says, listen, here's what we've been celebrating. All that has been a placeholder pointing to me. And me, my body broken for you, my blood covers your sin. And then he says this, now continue this, do this. Here's the words we tend to use. It's in, it's in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says this to the church in Corinth, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered from you. As Paul got it from Jesus, if you're here on Sunday nights for essentials, you're doing that, same idea, what that delivered to you. What I got from Jesus, I gave it to you just as he gave it to me. On the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next slide. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds this, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. As often as you do this, you proclaim the gospel over yourselves. You remind yourselves of the sin that needs to be removed. You remind yourselves of the brokenness that Christ endured on your behalf. You remind yourselves of the blood shed that it takes to cover your sin. He says, so do this as often as you can. You do this and you proclaim the gospel over yourselves. That's not all Paul says in that passage. In fact, he gives us some concern. He gives us some warning. He gives us some commandment in that. 1 Corinthians 11, 17 and 20 says this, but in the following instruction, I don't commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. When you come together, it's not the Lord's supper that you eat. 
Paul is chastising the church in Corinth as they gather together and have become something entirely other than what Jesus designed. And he goes through their specific things. But let's just say this. When we gather together, are we celebrating what Christ endured on our behalf and the promise of our redemption and restoration? Are we here for that? Are we just going through the paces? Are we contemplative enough to pause and ask ourselves, Jesus, is it me? Is it me that's going to let you down? Is it me that's going to betray you? Or Jesus, how about a better question? Where have I let you down? What can I surrender here to you? How can I make this about the removal of sin and about the covering of my sin and the redeeming of my life? How can I make this moment that? So he gives an invitation, Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Just to, as this is a means of grace, that there is a, a grace given to you in this, a strengthening, a positive thing that happens to you in, as you take communion. It's not just cracker and juice. It's, it's not just a memorial. It's a, it's a means of grace to you. But just as that is, he also says, do it wrongly. And it's a negative too. He goes, he says, no, you eat and drink judgment on yourself for taking this so lightly. So he says, pause and reflect and think. Consider. When we search our hearts and we confess our sin and we come forward to take communion, in that moment, that's that place where Jesus does work. Where the Holy Spirit inside us begins to put together pieces and cover brokenness. Because of what Christ has done, we can be made whole. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you would just say, I'm... I'm uh, I had a young guy I was meeting with the other day, and he said, well, about a few weeks ago, I would have said I go to church. Now I say I'm a Christian. So if you're just one of those people that are here, and you say you go to church, it's okay. If you'd like to make that step of faith today, of believing in Jesus, you can take communion and do that. In fact, I, I, would, I would tell you there's no greater way to have that first moment as identifying yourself in Christ to be found in his body and blood, to be found in the gospel, the very thing he did for us. And if you have wandered away, if you've been that Christian who's just, just wandered, now's the time to come home. Now's the time to come, to come back and to say, Jesus, I, I want to give all of you. I want to give me, all of me to you. And, and I want all that you have for me. And just do that. Just confess that to God and then come forward. If you're here and you are a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, you and I all know that still means we're still broken and sinful. And this is that time to say, God, where are you calling me to change? Where, what are you calling me to surrender to you in my life? What is it that I'm doing that isn't pleasing to you? Or well, what relationship do I need to surrender to you? Or what thing, what, whatever. But God, would you speak to me? Jesus, will you speak to me in this moment? And when we have done all that, we get to hear like the words of David in Psalm 34. Yeah, the next slide. Psalm 34 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. When we have done our part, when we have done all that introspection just to say, okay, I'm here. Then Jesus invites us forward and says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who 
takes refuge in him. So I'm going to invite the elders up. If you would come, and, and elders and I think and deacons are coming to serve communion. So today, again, today we're going to take the cup. We're going to take the bread. We're going to hang on to it. And then we're going to take this together as a body. Much of Christianity is... Want to do this? Much of Christianity is very individualistic today. Very just me and what I want. This is about being a part of a body. This is about being found as a member of one another in Christ. As we take a part of the body and a part of the blood, we remind ourselves that we're enjoined together. So as they bring this to you, please hang on to them. We'll take them together.
but hopefully with some context, something rooted in thousands of years of history. We can see the night that Jesus sat down with his disciples and took something they understood, something they had a glimpse of, as death would pass over them and the removal of sin, as they, as they, as they understood that in their Jewish context and the covenant that they had been given. What Jesus does is he fulfills the covenant. He doesn't end it. He completes it. See, the lamb's blood never covered anything. It just pointed forward to Jesus. And so the reason for no more Passover today, the reason we celebrate communion and not Passover, let me reframe it, is that the blood has been satisfied. There's no need to slaughter a lamb. There's no need to put blood on the doorpost. Christ has died on the cross. It's like circumcision has been fulfilled and now people practice baptism. That there's no more blood covenant symbols. That everything is now water and bread and cup. Because Jesus' death has satisfied every need. And so we have that opportunity as we do that is to remind ourselves that everything we have to be complete in Christ is available. And he's, been given, and he's given us this image of brokenness and shed blood to remind us that he is here and that the call to redemption and restoration is here. Can you pray with me? God, as we gather, we have this opportunity we have this moment to remember your suffering, your death, and though we will never comprehend, first the pain of, of the punishment, the scourge and the cross, the shame and the humility that it took to be there. We'll never understand how God in human flesh can die how you, the author of life who spoke and there was life, how you can die. We'll never understand that. It is a mystery to us. We will never know the feeling of having been united with God the Father the entire life you had and then on that cross feel the separation as you took on the weight of the sin of humanity. We'll never know. And Jesus, we thank you that we will never know because in you we are complete. In you, we are covered. In you, we are forgiven and redeemed and have new life. But just as you did with your disciples, Jesus, you, you broke bread, so we have broken bread. I pray that you would bless it. Let it strengthen us. Let it remind us that you suffered in our place so that we don't have to. Generations Church, take the cracker. Jesus, as you sat around that table, you lifted up a cup and you blessed it and then you said, this is my blood of the covenant. This is my fulfillment of what we've been, we've been leaning into and looking forward to for years, generation after generation for thousands of years. You said, it's complete in me when I go to the cross and the grave. You bless the cup. I pray you would bless this. And like you did with your disciples, we take the cup and we ask that this would just wash over us and forgive us. Generations Church, take the cup.
Jesus, each week when we come and we worship and we take communion, may we pause and reflect on what it means. May it not just be a habit or a practice that we do without thinking. May it be something that deepens our faith, drives us nearer to you. As we respond now in worship, I pray, Jesus, may you be glorified. It's in your name we pray.